Let's go, let's go. Here we go, here we go. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given us a pioneer of salvation and made him the true and eternal priest and mediator of his people, grant, we beg you, that we hold him fast in love, learn obedience through his discipleship, and be brought to the heavenly sanctuary with him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Okay, make good use of your Lent. You don't have much time left, only a couple of weeks. A couple of things now. You'll get, um, if you can do something, this... Somebody tried this great school thing, it works. It's mildly cumbersome, but then you live in Illinois, so you knew that already. Uh, you apparently have to get a letter or something. In any case, do this with a little bit of warning. I mean, their goal was to do 100 of these. We could do 100 of them in our congregation. It wouldn't be that big a deal. I just can't do it right now before Easter, but you should do it because, you know, yeah, you don't have time. So take a look at it if you want to do it. If you, basically, if you give some money... You know, 75% of it goes to the school. So if you give 1000 bucks, the school gets, um, you know, you get a $750 tax credit and, and um, you, only, you only pay, you know, 250 bucks. So just take a look at it. We'll work on it next year when we have a little more time to think it through. Uh, next week, I know this is preaching the choir because if you stay for Bible study, you're pretty much dialed into this stuff. But you'll hear twice from us, I hope, this week. You'll get envelopes with, they'll have a pledge card. You'll get a letter from me. Somebody said, can't you write a short letter? Uh, yeah, longer than the text, shorter than the letter. So you're going to get a letter with some bullet points. Just follow directions, okay? Now, here's the thing. If you, if you want to save us some time and some money, if you go online and do it, it goes directly, like magically, right into our books. So John Crow will probably have a mass said for you if you all go to online and do it. Uh, it's harder if we... It's harder if we uh, if we do, if we do, if, we do, if you send us paper, you know we're always happy to have it. But non-paper is better, as you know. So, and we'll let you know. Um, things seem to be cooking along okay, but you know we'll get through Lent, and then sometime Easter afternoon you'll get a text from us and an email or whatever else it takes. Okay. Uh, questions about anything? So things are clipping along. Yes, Byron. Uh, uh, just you know what? Mind meld. <laughs> I know. Um, the organ is clipping along. I try not to go in there because I don't add any value. The worst thing is a pastor in a hard hat supervising a project. <laughs> if you ever see that, run the other way. Run. Um, you know, the thing is, is uh, who knew? We were outside. Uh, there's all different ideas about how things should work, whether you should hear it at all, hear it a little bit. I think, what's the date, Peter, that will on April 22nd at 8.30, we will put holy water on it and ruin the stain on the case. <laughs> or maybe we won't. But um, it'll play, play on the 22nd. And then in life together, there's a full range of things happening. Nathan will teach about it during the summer. There's two or three different concerts. He'll play an inaugural concert. We have a big shot, big deal, big guy organist coming in who used to go to St. Peter in Arlington Heights, and then he was American Altar Guild Organist of the Year or something like that. So big, fancy guy. And our organ builder was in the front of some big, fancy organ builder's organ magazine. So, um, you know, it's all, everything is working in that direction, but you'll, there's all this stuff about should we play it some little bit, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. These are all strategic things. But full blast. And then you probably don't even remember this. We're giving our organ as a donation to a smaller church. One of our old interns, Pastor Mark Burkholz, they've had this 
literally this organ held together by baling wire and you know plastic bags for several years. And we've promised them our organ, so we're going to give it to them as a gift. I think the organ goes out. When's it go out, John? So April 16th, the other one, so the, other, the next one has to play on April 27th. <laughs> but the thing is, we, did, we were trying to get to Easter, but you know, we had several things we wanted. We wanted to redo the interior by Easter. We wanted the speakers up by Easter, all this kind of stuff, but it's very hard. Uh, yeah, it's just very hard. So I had an old joke from Blazing Saddles, but now that I'm older, uh, <laughs> I thought that I would just sort of... Pillage plunder, you remember this? Oh, yeah, I was a contractor. Okay, yeah, I get it, yeah. So anyway, you can go back and watch it on Netflix if you want. I can't be responsible for what you do. Um, All right, anything else cooking? Anything else we need to do? So it's not the same as the one I gave you last time, although it has the same icon because that's a good icon for you to ponder. And I gave you a second icon today, which is so such a beautiful thing, the icon of Mary's death. The interesting thing about the icon of Mary's death if you, if you click to it, the interesting thing about the icons of Mary's death is, uh, you know, just sometimes it's just fun to look at it without explanation, but do you, do you see it there? It's in a couple of, couple of pages, you know, the way Jesus cares for us. Let's see if I can find it. Do you, you have it there? So, uh, Lindsay, tell me, think for me, tell me what to do. Oh, uh, Pat. Kirby, think for me, tell me what to do. Oh, sure. <laughs> Nice one. Untrue, but nice one. Uh, where's the pads? Okay, yes. Thank you very much. Pads, I mean, give money to pads. That's good. Um, you know, you can sort of just, if I get boring, you can just think about this icon, right? So here's Mary on her deathbed. And then, of course, Jesus overseeing her, which you'd all, on your deathbed, you'd like Jesus to oversee you as well, right? And then the little baby, Jesus holding the little baby. Who's the little baby? Anybody know? Close? Mary. So Jesus watches over Mary's death, holding the baby Mary. Isn't that great? Right? This is the way that God cares for you. It's a famous representation in this icon that Jesus holds us all dear. And so this mystery of how Jesus even saves his mother or how he holds her dear even in her death. It's just the nicest. It's just the nicest of nice thing. And of course, if you go farther up, then Mary is in heaven above, right? And so the angels surround and all of that. So Jesus, as you're used to him, coming out of the blue of eternity. So this is always a signal that Jesus is doing some remarkable divine thing. What's he doing? He's savior for even his mother. And so part of what you learn in these last words of Jesus is that as you, even as Jesus dies, his focus is outward. He's had his crisis. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and before that, um, he's, he's felt the full wrath about, you know, if there's another way to drink, uh, to have this cup drunk. So, um, but in the midst of this, this, these things happen because Jesus needs to suffer what we suffer. So um, just, a, just a quick word. Um, when I saw you two weeks ago, just a quick word about finishing up. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, which, of course, could be talk about you or about me. You know, hey, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. And this very uh, gracious notion that Jesus goes to his death willingly and in cooperation with the Heavenly Father. And sometimes it's dismissed as um, the Father forcing this upon the Son. Whatever God does, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit agree on together. There are different persons with different personalities and different tasks. 
But what's done toward us and for the life of the world is done in cooperation, and each does the thing. So, you know, Jesus suffers on the cross, but the Father suffers as a father who has lost a son, right? And so you, you can't, and there's, you know, long discussions about the impassibility of God, whether God can in fact suffer. Well, God suffers on the cross in Christ, and the Father suffers as a father who loses a son, right? Now, there are ways that God doesn't change, um, his eternity, for example, or his immutable love for you. What doesn't change in God is that he wants you back. That's the thing that doesn't change. The thing that doesn't change is God is that he wants you back. He created you, and he wants you home again. That never changes. It's the only story in Scripture. Every story in Scripture is the prodigal son. Every story in Scripture is God having his people back. Every story in Scripture is coming home to Eden. There's only one story, right? But the suffering of that story and the gravity of our sin. And so that's what gets worked out over the next couple of weeks. And that's why Lent is so important to sort of settle everybody into that. It's exhausting. You know, I think most people, if you take Lent seriously, especially if you've um, been fasting or been given to prayer or working out your capital camp thing or trying to think about your life, it's exhausting. People come. It's the reason it's rose-colored last week is to kind of give you a break and some happiness. But these next couple of weeks are difficult. It's difficult to watch other people suffer unless you're, you know, utterly demonic. Um, you know, it's difficult. So, but in Jesus, one of the remarkable things, of course, is he shows us what suffering should look like, which is even in his suffering, he preps the church. He moves things forward. He loves us. He comes back to us, right? It's this remarkable thing. So you shouldn't let it be said that a reason not to believe is that the father abuses his son, which was popular for a little while. Occasionally, you still hear it by people who aren't very well informed. Everyone does what is given them to do, and the father... Um, gives his own son, and the son willingly goes. And this is an analogy that's everywhere, right? We talked about that a little bit last time. Um, Christianity really is so simple, right? That Jesus loves you and Jesus will never hurt you. That Jesus is for you and not against you. That Jesus will only be your enemy if you make him be your enemy. This is such simple, basic stuff. To say, you know, you can say it all in under 10 words or less. Jesus loves you. Jesus will never hurt you. Jesus um, will do anything to have you back. It's a remarkable kind of thing. But, you know, that Jesus would never be your enemy unless you make him be your enemy is, is really quite, uh, quite a remarkable thing. So, um, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what you're, they're doing. That's, that's us a lot of the time. We don't, we don't have a clue. And yet we read this long piece from last time from Newhouse about how the, the cross is the center of the world and a chance for you and I to come to our senses. And so Jesus shows us that from start to finish. You know, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So now I'm all the way through then, and I did give you the same icon. You see Mary and John below and Adam's skull below that. So now I'm what I handed you today. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Of course, there's more to the story than is outside of Scripture, and tradition comes up too. So you aren't surprised that the other two thieves have names. Um, guess 
in Dismuth, right? And so the one thief, as you'll hear, taunts Jesus. If you're the son of God, you should um, really get us all down and win the day, which, of course, has been the great temptation forever. If you're the son of God, why don't you? That was the devil comes to Jesus when he's in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, change these stones into bread. If you're the son of God, call your angels down and surround you. You know, if you're the son of God, take us down from the cross, from this suffering. That's the single temptation for Jesus to do something outside his father's will, to solve the trouble a different way, which Jesus then refuses. And you have this faithfulness of the other thief who just kind of says, Jesus, would you please remember me when you come into your kingdom? So I'm sort of scooching down um, to four and to five. This is how God wishes to, to be known to you. Uh, we, we sort of pleasure in force because force seems to get things done. But of course, force, force is always a short-term solution because force runs against freedom and human beings are made for freedom. So if you're pushing somebody around, somebody who works for you, your kids, um, your spouse, if you're pushing people around all the time, there is a time when that explodes, right? That people just can't take anymore, the world turns against you. So force doesn't have duration. It isn't on the side of eternity. Love is on the side of eternity, right? And love never works by force. There is no, no force in love. Love always, love lasts forever, and love doesn't work by force. Force, like evil, works in the short term and then disappears, which is why patience, endurance, is one of the virtues, right? To be patient, because there is this notion that God will rescue you on the far side. So when Jesus is troubled, there are two possibilities. It's the very same two possibilities that you have when you're troubled, which is you can either renounce God and do it yourself, or you can patiently bear it, knowing that your solutions can't ever get you to where you must go, and allowing God to move you to a place of, of holiness and eternity. So you follow the path of Jesus. This is why the cross is paradigmatic for us. Because in Jesus, we see what it is to be fully human. You know, we see our destiny in Jesus. It really is true, the thing that we read two weeks ago, where the, the cross is the axis on which the world turns. Now, of course, the difficulty of life is to do that in real time. Uh, but that, in fact, is, is, is the, the, the discipline of being a Christian. So um, I'm sort of at point five. The reticence of the Gospels, as well as these spare words from the cross, is not accidental. Instead, that reticence is a discipline given us by God to draw us into and to make our participants in the silence of redemption wrought by the cross. So there is this great, and I'm, I'm sure that it's true, um, there is this great nervousness that we will always be alone and unloved. Most people who... Um, Except for po folks who sort of go off the edge into pure demented evil, which is a whole other thing to be. The demonic is a whole other way of, you have to, there's a whole other set of tools to use that. But there's very few people who move into that. For most people, our sins are some order of weakness, right? And usually that weakness boils down to being alone and unloved. And there are all sorts of derivations of that, not to be in power, right? Right? not to be looked at as weak, 
to exercise dominion over other people. There's all sorts of ways that this shows it. But deep down, you know, our problem is that we feel like we'll be left out, all alone and unloved. And so this prayer that Jesus would remember us, you know, that you would remember when, you, when we come into your kingdom, um, this is actually the words of faith. You know, for people sometimes ask about Taze and why we do that. Taze is the new catechism. You know, I know that um, I, everyone's, I, I know that they're the, so about the time when I was young, memory work went out of style. I was kind of the last group that had memory work. And then somehow everybody decided all at once that memory work was some sort of way to abuse your children. Okay. But you have a whole raft of people who, you know, can't recite their memory work. Now, I've told you often about my grandmother. That's the other side of it. It's just pure meanness of, you know, having a little kid recite all the, all the answers to all the questions in German by herself in front of the whole congregation. I mean, that, that's not actually the right way either. But, you know, there's something in between. Well, Taze, Jesus, remember, Taze, a lot of Taze, you know, is the kingdom of God is justice and peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, come now, right? Enlighten our hearts. All these things are really just Bible verses said in kind of a different way. So when your kids can sing song those things out, they're learning a whole different set of memory work of different verses. So Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? So if you hear your kids singing along to that, um, it's the rejoicing that your kids know that they wouldn't be left alone and that Christ will always stand by them, right? So Jesus sees this, I'm sorry, this, 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 the, um, the, the thief who believes, you know, sees Jesus as one who would remember him even in death and through death. And it's possible to see in this the notion of immortality and a confession. You know, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? That's a confession beyond the point of death. So I drew for you, you know, your life, which is a ray. You have an end point, and then you just keep going. There's a couple of things that happen in your life. One is that you're baptized, where your death is the death of Jesus. You're cemented with Jesus. You die with Jesus. You rise with Jesus. We say that about 20 times in the baptismal liturgy. Now that this child has become your child. Why? Because this child has been stitched to Jesus. So if it happens to Jesus, it happens to you. Okay, that's your big death. Your big death happens, and this is why you shouldn't delay the baptism of your children. right? And I know there are concerns about people, and but the longer you go, the more it diminishes what is actually happening in baptism. Right? Get your kid to the water the next Sunday. Get your kid to the water. Don't delay. Yes, of course we indulge it, and of course we can't talk you out of it. But um, and we don't have a lot of leverage, nor do we want to exercise leverage with you. But the kindest thing you can do is to let your child die and rise again in Christ at baptism. So you basically have a start. I'll, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, is, there a, is there a thing there? Look at you, Mr. Shia. Thank you. Right. So you basically, your whole life just is so, is so simple, right? You have this, you know, I think I drew this for you, that God, God doesn't have a beginning and an end, right? So then at some point... They say, wouldn't it be fun to have more people to love, right? And so you have this, you have this start point, and if all goes well, about right here um, on the eighth day, on the eighth day, you come to baptism, and then there'll be another point at which you die again. You know, this will be the end of you right here somewhere. But, you know, it's not much of a break point because um, 
you'll carry on again like Mary, and Jesus will hold you close and, and bring you near. So once you get your baptism, um, you have this confidence that you'll never be alone and you'll never be unloved. And you hear this confession in The Thief on the Cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, you know, this isn't a popular notion anymore. Um, we insist that, you know, we can make it on our own or that every challenge is our challenge. This is not a popular notion. But I don't know that the church was ever meant to be popular. You know, we got lucky for a couple thousand years in the Western world. But things are going back the other way, and everybody is so nervous about it. As you, as you hear people be nervous about it, try to, try, to think, try to think about what they're nervous about themselves and what they're nervous about the... You know, this often happens when I, you know, we just had a district convention, all this stuff. And I, everything I get from the district and the synod, I ask themselves if they're talking about the Missouri Senator, if they're talking about Jesus, right? Now, ideally, those two things should overlap perfectly. But your nervousness shouldn't be about the Missouri Senate, or your nervousness shouldn't be about, you know, these two square blocks. Your nervousness should always be about whether or not you confess, that is, you see and say and do as Jesus sees and says and does. That's your nervousness. It's not the institution. It's not a Christian nation. It's not all these other things. It's the cross of Christ. Yes, it's great if all these other things swirl around, but so often they're not swirling at all. They're just a facade, right? What matters is that at your death point, you can say, as this thief says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's the confession that his kingdom extends beyond the gravestone and that you're a part of it, and you're a part of that um, because Jesus himself has agreed to remember you, right? So I just turned the page. Um, I'm all the way just above 10. So I don't know what page you're on, but turn your page till you get to 10. How about that? Okay. Yeah, I don't know what page I'm on either, so it's not a criticism of you. This, um, this thing from Newhouse. Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. So, you know, my kind of stock answer, if you come in to me, now this will discourage any of you from coming in and saying this to me, but, you know, when people come in and say, yeah, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore, I'm like, yeah, Whatever, Jesus believes in you. That I wait, wait, <laughs> waiting. I mean, the big thing isn't that you believe in Jesus, it's that Jesus believes in you. Of course, you know, it works the other way around. Jesus believes in you, he loves you, you recognize that love. But if you have some meter on the strength and the weakness of your faith, you know, it's all down, it's up, it's up high, I'm, things are wonderful, it's all down low, right? I mean, Jesus isn't fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes our faith more serious than we do, right? Jesus takes your faith more seriously than you do and makes of it more than we ever could. When we're always thinking about our own pious little hearts, we're all thinking about how strong or weak our faith are, is, and then we're all thinking about, you know, what our gifts are and what, what I should charge forward and do. When we're thinking about all of those things, it's very likely that we've lost our focus, The focus is the cross. The focus is Christ. The focus is love. The focus is mercy. The focus is to have a Lent, to say your prayers. Because some demons, frankly, are only cast out by prayer and by fasting. So the constant, constant, and you get this somewhat from Luther, but you get it from living in Wheaton, Illinois, too. The constant reflection all the time is not particularly helpful when it's always talk about me and my faith, right? Because at some point that becomes talk about me and my 
Every good thing comes from outside you. If you're dying, the reason you'll go to heaven is because Jesus put the Eucharist into you, the token of the resurrection. Right? If you're lost, the reason you'll find your way home is because Jesus baptized you. And now that this has become your child, right? So stop talking about yourself. Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith because the quality of your faith kind of goes like this, right? Hopefully, you know, it goes, you know, lower left, upper right. Whoops, that would be this way for you. Hopefully it goes, you know, (laughs) right? Hopefully, but, you know, he takes our faith more seriously than we do and makes of it more than we ever could. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. Give him an opening, almost any opening, and he opens life to wonder beyond measure. And that, you see, is the great evangelism. This is true if you have children. This is true if you know people who don't believe. This is true for the broader world. You know, the great, the notion of evangelism is threatening people, getting kids to come to church by pulling them by the ear, right? Or kind of arguing people, people into things. You know, all of that is by force, and it only works for so long. There's a very different discussion when people are baptized and near and over dinner a glass of wine, you have the same discussion in the way of the gospel where you talk about the great joy that Jesus has in store for you in a way that is not threatening but blessing, right? So we have this nervousness that we want to protect the institution. We want to protect our place. We don't want to be shamed. We don't, you know, it really boils down so simply to, for us and our children and the people we love and our congregation and the world, you know, this is what it boils down to, that Jesus believes in us and would like to hold us near. And when we can talk to people, our kids, our family, our friends, in a way that gives them an opening, almost any opening, and you open life beyond measure, that's why people come to the church and stay in the church. That's the reason why. They don't come because of force. And if you need any doubt about that, as soon as people are old enough to drive or stay home or go away, they do that. And the way to call them back is not to threaten them, no son of mine, or you know, to withhold love or to shame in large group gatherings over Christmas or Easter, right? right? I mean, the worst thing you can say to people who are only going to show up twice a year is, you know, well, they're going to be here in two weeks, and you, if you say something like, I never see you, this is not particularly helpful, right? Or I haven't seen you since Christmas, right? Yeah, that's not going to be the thing that will make him come back on low Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, which has the lowest attendance of the church, right? What you want to do is open them to a wonder, which is to love them in a way that other people don't love them, to stick by them. This is, frankly, all we've done for the last couple of years in Bible study. It's been the same look from different directions. How you can engage people in love so that they feel welcomed and so they, frankly, want to be here. And when they go somewhere else, They can't wait to get back, right? That's what we're trying to do. You still good? Questions about any of that? I know it's not, you know, it doesn't seem programmatic, and it doesn't seem, you know, maybe efficient. But it is the way of Jesus. But maybe being crucified isn't particularly efficient either, right? But this remarkable thing that Jesus would come back to us it's quite, it's quite an amazing thing. Maybe more on that at Easter time. All right, all good still? So I'm just at point 10. 
um, that we yearned for Eden, that we yearned for uh, communion with the Lord. We yearn for things that are true and beautiful and good and perfect. The only death to fear is the death of settling for something less. The way of paradise, the way to paradise, is not the way of return. It is the way of being restored. Right? So it's always got to be more than. I'm fascinated by this notion that on Easter, the very people who have been with Jesus for three years, day in, day out, don't recognize him. Very interesting that he perhaps meets his uncle on Easter Sunday on the road to Emmaus. There's Clopas who's at the cross. There's Cleopas, an alternate spelling, is one of the name, an alternate spelling is one of the men that he meets on the road, who say, you know, the, the Greek word is, are you an alien? I mean, the, real, the word that's used is alien. Like, are you from another planet? Are you from outside this place? You have no idea what's going on. Everybody knows this. So they consider themselves the most well-informed people, and yet when they see Jesus again in the flesh, they don't recognize him. What, what in the world does that mean? And I'm very curious what you'll, what you'll be like. And it's, just, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. To be with Jesus, to be claimed by Jesus, to be his friend is paradise. For Jesus is the kingdom of God, the autobasilia, the kingdom of the crucified. We need to know no more than this. To be in paradise is to be with Jesus, to be pulled into God's life by the love made visible on the cross. Our salvation is no more, no less than being made part of God's body, God's enfleshed memory. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do this in remembrance of me. To be remembered is to be loved, to be included, to be part of the family. Right? Memory is everything. So... To be remembered is to be enfleshed, is to be part of the community, is to be part of the body, so that the world may know that we are redeemed from our fervid and desperate desire to ensure that we'll not be forgotten. That is, that we're not left alone and unloved. That everybody in is nobody, and, and I, except for me. That everybody's loved except for me. This is a desperate thing, and it's at the base of almost everything, short of being utterly uh, demonic. Right? So, you just, you just sort of carry on. Now, sometimes people take advantage of this, and this is a common question, at least from outside. You know, often when I appeal, especially when I give lectures other places and appeal to the objective thing that Jesus does to you. Jesus loves you. Jesus believes in you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus baptizes you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus gives you the Eucharist. Jesus, 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 Jesus. People then say kind of, oh, then I can do whatever I want. That's one side of it. Then the other common question is, oh, then why do people just push that away as if it were a nothing? Right? Well, because both of those are the, you know, it's a ditch on the opposite sides of the road. But one hears the objection. What's the point of being a Christian if in the end everybody gets saved? Which, of course, is, you know, the goal. The goal is that everyone gets saved. I mean, the, your prayer should be that hell is empty. Right? As much as you may hate somebody or think that somebody really deserves it, you know, pick who you like. You know, as much as you think, you know what? What Christ is doing on Good Friday is for dying for them too. So a Christian's prayer is that hell is empty. And the church's business is to empty hell. This is why in some, you saw the, not in this one, but you, um, 
you only saw in this crucifixion motif the skull of Adam underneath the cross because traditionally Jesus gets crucified on the spot of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, on the spot where Isaac was going to be sacrificed by Abraham, Abraham, sorry, on Mount Zion, and on the spot where Adam is buried. In the tradition of the church, that's the same place three or four times, okay? So the icon of the resurrection regularly has Jesus either walking across a couple of boards in the shape of the cross or breaking those uh, open as if they shuttered the place to hell and pulling uh, Adam and Eve out. Now, there's a range of things that are going on there, but among the, at least the, the basic notion is that this Jesus point is to empty hell, right? That's the point. And this is what you should pray for. You should pray that hell is empty. You, you have no standing to hate anybody enough to send them to hell. It doesn't, doesn't lie with you. You've broken the first commandment when you wish for that. You've usurped the judgment of God. You've made a judgment that God doesn't make. So for God so loved the world, the whole world. right? The intention is, is that hell is emptied. So um, then people sometimes say, like, well, what's the point then? Well, here's the thing. You can only think that way if you think the whole point of the church is to keep you out of hell. The point of keeping you out of hell is not, that's not the point of the church. That's the first thing the church does. It's not the last thing. The first thing is to keep you out of hell. The rest of your life is to form you in the image of God and to get as much good out of you as possible. When you ask Jesus to remember you, you're asking not just forgiveness, but you're asking for the life of forgiveness. So when people say, well, if it's all, you know, if everybody goes to heaven or if you're aiming at everybody or if Jesus forgives or if he dies for everybody, what's the point? What's the point? I mean, this is the greatest thing. One hears the objection, what's the point of being Christian if in the end everybody is saved? People who ask that should listen to themselves. What's the point of being first rather than last and serving the Lord whom you love? So just think about your Latin disciplines. What's the point of fasting? Because you all kind of have all kinds of Christian friends who don't. What's the point? Because it refines you as a Christian. And some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. And you certainly have someone in your family somewhere who suffers from the classic things of infestation or oppression, right? Or obsession. Or, very occasionally, possession. But there's all kinds of people to be praying for. What's the point? What's the point of being generous to other people? It disciplines your own flesh, and it's merciful toward other people. What's the point of forgiving people that you hate? Because Jesus forgives them, and you're meant to be like Jesus. What's the point? What's the point of being found rather than lost? What's the point of knowing the truth rather than living in ignorance? It's beautiful. It's good. It's true. It's better. It's loving. It's perfect. It's embracing. It's not unloved, and it's not alone. What's the point of being welcomed home by the waiting father? Remember we did this? Rather than languishing in the pigsty, what's the point? The question answers itself. What's the point of the church? What do you mean, what's the point? Right? People who ask, what's the point of the church? Are, you know, the scales need to drop from their eyes. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, true life is life that doesn't live by force. Life that does live in love. Life that is not alone. Life that suffers itself to be crucified. What's the point? The point is, this is life and everything else is kind of pretend, kind of slipping down a slope to death. What's the point? This is all there is, friends. 
This is why you should be really, really good at it. This is why you should be utterly committed to it. This is why this comes first. This is why there's a third commandment. Because this is all there is. This is all there is. This is it. Now, looking around at some of you and looking back at me, you're going, ooh, I actually thought heaven might be better. But, right, here's the thing. You'll just have to do this for now because someday when we get to heaven, I won't quite recognize Yonker. I'll say, Yonker, I never knew you were this good. I should have paid better attention. And Hopkins should have shown you more respect, right? It would be like that. <laughs> Strutzel, he Strutzel should have been kinder to right? Because look, look at you, know, right? I probably, if I don't recognize you on first glance, it's only because you're so good, right? And then, you know, sort of I've taken you to this icon of Mary. So what, look at what Jesus is doing. So Jesus first has this kind of universal, Father, forgive them, they have no idea. So I came here to save them all, and they're so screwed up that then even the people in power, and this is going to be the end of it, and nothing's going to work. And so you start, to, he start, you start to break him down, and you have all, just like we've been all the way along, Jesus has been meeting people in John's Gospel, you have smart people, and you have not-so-smart people, and you have holy people, and you have academic people, and you have broken people, and you have outcast people, you have people who are alone, people who are demon-possessed, um, people, people who just, uh, just are completely lost. These are the people who, look, all these people are recapitulated at the cross. So this world full of people decides now that they're going to crucify Jesus. And, and you know, it's like, they don't know what they're doing. You know, we work this out from eternity. Right? And I took flesh, and we're here, and we all agreed, and this would be my part, but for goodness sakes. Now what happens is that Jesus sort of works through the same people that he's met along the way. So he's got a guy who just won't believe in him, right? If you're, if you're hey, if you were true, you would do something. You've got a guy who believes in him wholly is kind of like, I, I screwed up everything else in my life, and this is how it's going to end for me with the vultures picking out my eyes, hanging on a cross in Jerusalem. Right? And so Jesus kind of works his way through from people who are broken to people who have just come along to now his mother, who must have um, had remarkable sort of emotions given all the things that she'd been through. Woman, behold your son. I'm right at point 13. Um, Go clear to the bottom. For us to think of Jesus is to think of Mary. I mean, I hopefully over the last 20 years, you know, together you've lost your antipathy if you ever had any for Mary. I mean, when Jesus was choosing teams, you know, Mary was first pick, right? I mean, come on. If you're going to agree with Mary, if you're going to agree with God, I mean, you know, Mary's a good place to start. From her received his humanity, his Jewish humanity. Try to remember that Jesus was a Jew. He didn't, didn't look quite so much like us. Darker skin, smaller stature, right? Just given the times, you know, you can go to Jerusalem, you, you're always ducking your head. You know, just, just like he received his humanity, his Jewish humanity, the color of his eyes, the cut of his nose, the odd way of smiling. She potty trained him, taught him his first words, encouraged his first steps, kissed his scuffed knee, and made it all better. Picked him up in the dark of nightmare nights, and told him everything was all right. Even as she pondered prophecies about piercing swords and wondered at the meaning of the king from the east who presented the royal gift of myrrh for his birth, or was it for his burial, of her lovely child, she accompanied the strange glory of the temple where a prodigious 12-year-old dazzled his elders with his learning. 
She was our first source miracle at the wedding of Cana, where he turned water into wine. And then you have this sense where he looks down to her and says, woman, right? Which is a respectful way to talk. Behold your son, behold your mother. At some point, you know, and this is, I have promised this. It's been five years since I talked to the iconographer and tried to set things up, and I've talked to some other people since then and sort of said, even last year, I'm kind of humiliated by this. I said, you know, the one goal I had for the year was to get the icons going for the back chapel. You can talk to me if you want about this. I think the initial plan is to get St. John, who's our patron, St. John Lutheran Church, and then on the other side, um, Mary and the child. But exactly which Mary and the child is always, and it's probably been 10 years I've been thinking about this and trying to, it just is, there's just so much going on. And the other thing is, anything done inside the sanctuary takes such amount of care, you just can't, can't get it wrong. So, but at some point, we have to kind of get past that and, and um, have this representation that will hold the chapel, but also kind of hang under the cross in much the way that you look at the front icon, Mary on one side and John on the other. So um, you honor Mary fully, when you can come to say Theotokos. This used to drive my own mother crazy to say that Mary was the mother of God, right? It's the kindest thing you can say about it. I mean, it's there, Theotokos, Theotokos, God, the mother of God, Godmother, right? You know, Mary is the mother of God. There's a correct way in which you can say that because you talk about Jesus' human nature, always connected to his divine nature, but... What you say about the human nature goes for the person Jesus. So Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. When you talk about the nature, it always talks about Jesus. So if you want to, you can say that God has a mother. It's strong in the Lutheran tradition. It's everywhere, right? So, and I've, I've sort of given you the quote there from the formula of Concord. On account of this personal union, this communion of natures, Mary, the most blessed virgin. And see, the thing is, is this is like, this is why it's so crazy to be a Lutheran and define yourself by what you hate in other places, especially the Catholics. I mean, read this. You, Mary is your mother, right? You, you love her. On account of this personal union, Mary, the most blessed virgin. That's how our, this is our confessions. This is what it means to be Lutheran. You talk about her as the most blessed virgin. Did not conceive a mere ordinary human being, but a human being who is truly the son of the Most High God, as the angel testifies. So you have this guy in flesh who is also the son of God, this person who is fully human, but also fully divine. He demonstrated his divine majesty even in his mother's womb and that he was born of a virgin without violating her virginity. There she is truly the mother of God and yet remained a virgin. So there you go. Lutherans believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, by the way. Um, But people argue about that all the time. But, I mean, there it is, right? Saying Theotokos, mother of God, is not a question of going too far, but of how far God went in becoming man. Maybe that's the last thing to say today, because I've already given you the icon, which you can look at for this quote by Dante, virgin mother, daughter of your son. Isn't that interesting? That Mary is the daughter of Jesus, virgin mother, daughter of your son. And so what's, what's interesting is things aren't always linear, I mean, I love linear things. I mean, I have a PhD in systematics, A to B to C to D. It's beautiful for me. I love things that when I like it when things work, right? But there's much of the world, especially John's gospel, which is a swirl, 
And there are double meanings. You, of course, have to cling to the literal meaning, but there are more meanings wrapped up. It doesn't really matter whether you think um, Jesus was crucified on the place where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac or where um, Adam was buried, but it's fun, right? It's fun. So you just have to think about that. All right, the bell players are sending me the secret signal that it's time to go. This is their... This is their secret signal that means they're playing at the next service, and it's very nice, so we should um, go. Just kind of come back. We'll have to scramble a little bit to get done. Um, Let's see. Where am I? I'm at Lent 5, so Palm Sunday is next week, right? Yikes. Okay, so we got a lot to do, but we will have Bible study, and then Easter will be off. Um, Just work on your, let's, you know, work on this capital campaign stuff. Get your tithing and alms, and let's get it behind us by, by next week, okay? So turn your stuff in. Remember, we're aiming at participation, and we're going to let the numbers take care of themselves. But what we would love to see is, I mean, even if people just turn it back in and say, I can't, or I'm not there, or here's a buck, or whatever. Just here's the thing. Just play along, because everybody's playing along. Just let it be a place where everybody plays along, at whatever your strength is at this particular moment. Discipline yourself. Think it through with your baptized brain. Do your best. And then that's the means with which you within which we live. It is what it is. You talk about it like grown-ups, you act like grown-ups, you live like grown-ups. That's how you live. There's no sort of stress about it or feeling bad or, you know, we can't arguing about it. It is what it is. This is what Jesus does. Um, this is what we do. And then we play on our two blocks in whatever capacity we're able to play. It's not, it just is what it is, okay? So it's part of normal life. Just do it, all right? Love you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks. Love you. Mark your, mark your uh, schedules. It's going to get busy now. Cheers.